I'm Norma Maite from Venezuela. And I am Elias Herrera from Venezuela. When we came in Plainfield, we have no friends. Mm -hmm. We understood that God's purpose in our life is to share the good mm -hmm. word of God and support foreigners in Plainfield mm -hmm. or Indianapolis. In our home, we have three bedrooms, one for us, <laughs> another for our son, and we have a guest room in our house. But never is empty. Always, always have a, someone in our house. We understood that they need support. After they left our house, our mm. home, they know who is Jesus like us, like strangers or like aliens, the Christians are the same because we are living in the world with a culture different our Christian culture. Good morning, church. Uh, open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Life can be dangerous if you don't see your enemy clearly. I heard about a blind guy one time who walked into a barber shop and he sat down, barber starts cutting his hair, and the blind guy says, I heard the best blonde joke this week. Then the barber says, hey, buddy, I'm gonna interrupt you right there. I'm gonna cut you a little bit slack because I know you're blind, but before you tell that joke, I just gotta warn you. I'm a full, former Golden Gloves boxer, and I'm blonde. Then the barber to your left is a former NFL linebacker, and he's blonde. And the barber to your right is a former Navy SEAL, and he's blonde. And to top it all off, the guy at the cash register over there is a black belt in karate, and he's blonde. So are you sure you still want to tell that joke? And the blind guy said, nah, I don't want to have to explain it four times. <laughs> Life can be dangerous if you don't see your enemy clearly. And in our text today, Peter wants us to see the enemy clearly. We're wrapping up our series called Strangers. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and today we're in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to see how Peter ends this letter, verses 8 through 14. Peter writes this. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever, amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, that's a euphemism for Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Life can be dangerous if you don't see your enemy clearly. So the first thing that you need to know today is that we have an enemy. Uh, the great writer A.W. Tozer says it like this. He says, the world is not a playground. 
but a battleground. We are not here to frolic. We are here to fight. And then the text we just read, Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. You have an enemy, Peter says. This devil, this roaring lion is hunting you. He is after us. Now, when we think about our enemy, when we think about spiritual warfare and these powers of darkness that be, there are two key mistakes that we can make, and we want to avoid either one. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In other words, the devil loves it when people become obsessed with the darkness, when they uh, become obsessed with the study of Satan and demons and dabbling in magic arts and things like that because it opens them up to his work. He loves that. But the devil also equally loves it when people ignore him, when people pretend like he doesn't exist, don't pay him any mind, maybe even don't believe that he exists. And I think that if we're not careful, this is the trap we are more likely to fall into. Because when we think of the devil, we think of that little red guy who sits on your shoulder across from the angel, right? He's got the pointy little beard, the horns, the forked tail, the trident, you know, the little red dude. And, and, and that's what we think of. We see him in cartoons. We see him at Halloween. Just as a side note, I hope you all watch weekday chat on Wednesdays at noon, Facebook Live. This week we're talking about how do we think about Halloween from a Christian standpoint? How can we glorify God through Halloween? I hope you'll tune into that. But sometimes our Halloween picture of the devil is where our knowledge of the devil ends. In fact, in a recent survey, when asked if the devil was a real living being or just a symbol of evil, only one third of Christians said that they thought the devil was a real living being. Life can be dangerous if you don't see your enemy clearly. So we're gonna take a few moments together today to learn about this enemy so that we can best resist him. First, let's look at the existence of the enemy. Who is the devil? Well, for starters, the devil is a real person. He's not just a vague force. He's not some inanimate personification of evil. He is a real living being created by God. He has a will, emotions, intelligence, power, And although the exact evolution of the devil in scripture is a little bit foggy about how he developed, how he came to be who he is, it is reasonable after reading scripture to think that the devil was once a good angel in heaven. God created him good. He was a glorious, powerful, angelic being who lived in God's presence. But then he became proud and he aspired to overthrow God and take over the throne of heaven. He deceived many of heaven's angels to follow him in his rebellion. And so they obviously were defeated. And the devil was then banished from heaven and cast down to earth. The bottom line of his existence is this. The devil is a real being who was created good by God and then corrupted by his own pride. So that's the existence of the enemy. Now let's look at the character of the enemy. What is the devil like? Two main things. First, he's powerful. The enemy is powerful. All we have to do is just look at the titles that scripture calls him. I mean, all throughout the Bible, he's called the ruler of this world, the God of this age, the accuser of the brethren, Beelzebub, the evil one, Apollyon, the prince of this world, an armed strong man, the dragon, the one who holds the power of death, the wicked one, the tempter, the ruler of demons, the prince of the power of the air, Belial, and the deceiver of the whole world. He's powerful and he's dangerous. He's a serpent who bites, he's a lion who devours, he's a destroyer, a killer, and a thief. He's a formidable enemy, so let's not underestimate him. 
In the text we just read, Peter says we need to be alert and be sober-minded, stay awake, be on guard, because he's powerful. And yet he's not all-powerful. Yes, the devil is God's enemy, but let's not pretend like they are equal and opposite beings. No, the day will come when, just like everything else in all creation, the devil will bow to do God's will. In the text we just read, Peter says the power belongs to God, and that's true. God alone is omnipotent and all-powerful. Yes, Satan is strong. He's stronger than you or me on our own. But God alone is all-powerful. Remember that. Our enemy is powerful. And secondly, our enemy is destructive. He's destructive. Everything evil in this world, every broken relationship, every lie, every act of violence, every corrupt government, every greedy thought is a weapon of Satan to destroy God's good creation. Ephesians chapter six says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Church, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that what we can see is all there is. We have a spiritual enemy who is hard at work around the clock to stop this church, to degrade this society, to pollute your soul. We have an enemy who's both powerful and destructive. Jesus says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he does not take any days off. He does not abide by the rules of the Geneva Convention. He does not fight fair. He is lurking, waiting, and working to bring us down even when we don't see him. So we're gonna try to expose him today. We've looked at the existence of the enemy and the character of the enemy, but what about the attacks of the enemy? When the devil comes after you, just what weapons is he gonna try to use against you? Well, there's many, but here there's, 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 we're gonna focus on five. The first one is this, he will use distraction. He'll use distraction. There's an old tale of uh, one time when Satan was trying to re recruit a demon to help destroy the souls of mankind and he asked which demon wanted the assignment and one came forward and said, I'll go. And Satan said, oh, if I send you, what will you tell the people? He said, I'll tell them that there's no heaven. Satan said, oh, they won't believe you for there's a little bit of heaven in every human heart. In the end, everybody knows that good will win. You may not go. Another demon came forward, darker and more evil than the first. Satan said, if I send you, what will you tell the people of earth? He said, I'll tell them there's no hell. Satan looked at him and said, oh, they won't believe you. For inside of every human heart, there's a thing called a conscience, an inner voice which testifies that there is a right and there is a wrong and that one day wrong will be defeated. You may not go. And then from the darkest place of all, a third demon came forth and volunteered. And Satan said to him, and, and if I send you, what will you say to the men and women to try to help them destroy their souls? He said, I'll tell them there's no hurry. And Satan said, go. You see, that's what the devil wants. He wants to distract you. He wants to help you fritter away your life doing all kinds of little things that keep you busy and distract you from the big things. He wants to convince you to put off till tomorrow what you know God is calling you to do today. And it'll happen very slowly, but surely, if you don't pay attention. C.S. Lewis says the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. 
until you get a little further down the road and you wonder, how did I end up here? That's why Peter says, he says, be alert, be of sober mind, stay awake, keep your eyes open, don't get distracted. That's the first weapon. Second weapon he'll use is he'll, he will use deception. Deception. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, very rarely will Satan and his attacks on your life appear blatantly and obviously evil. A lot of the time, he'll actually be beautiful. And he will come alongside you and pretend to be your friend. And he will give you options that seem appealing to you. But don't believe him. He wants to kill you. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's going to lie to you. He's going to try to deceive you into thinking that he's your friend and that God is your enemy and that the best thing for you to do would be to do whatever you want. And he's been using that same old lie ever since he used it way back in the garden on Eve. And he's doing the same thing now. He's spreading his lies around, trying to lead the world astray. You've heard the lies just like I have. There's no God. If there was a God, how could there be all this pain in the world? Oh, how could Jesus say that he's the only way? All religions lead to the same place, right? Oh, God wants you to be happy. Nobody else can tell you what to do. Oh, you, you better not tell anybody about that. You better keep that one to yourself. You, you got it under control. Oh, come on, you, you deserve this just one time. It's not that big of a deal, right? Too late now. You can't tell anybody about this. If you told them, imagine their faces if they knew what you did. If, if they knew who you really were, you better keep it to yourself. Lies. Church, that's why it's so important that you gotta be spending time in God's word every single day. That's the only way we're ever gonna learn to discern the truth from the lies. It's the only way. Jesus says in John chapter eight, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Listen, if you wanna know what's true, don't listen to the devil, don't listen to the world, don't listen to your heart. Listen to Jesus, <laughs> he'll tell you. There's a, a survey, it says a few, uh, this was a few years ago, but there's a survey that said that the average American spends nine minutes a day in spiritual activities. Nine minutes a day. Sure is hard to win a war on nine minutes a day, don't you think? He'll use distraction and he'll use deception. Third thing is he'll use temptation. The devil knows where you're weak and he's gonna wanna tempt you in your weakness to try to lure you into sin so that he can ruin you. Listen, every time you have the opportunity to entertain a lustful thought, you have stepped onto a spiritual battleground. Every time that you have a chance to complain or say a bitter or passive aggressive word, you are in the line of fire of the evil one. Every time you have a chance to lie, you're surrounded by enemy fire. Every time that you think about harboring bitterness or resentment or cynicism or unforgiveness, you are in the sights of the armies of darkness. Every time you encounter a person in need, you are engaging in spiritual combat. We're in a war. 
And one of the enemy's primary weapons against you will be temptation. We know this from personal experience, don't we? So what do we do when we're tempted? Well, we just read it. Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. One of the first verses I ever memorized as a kid was James 4, 7, which says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I still remember the motions they taught us in children's church. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. (laughs) And that's the truth. In your moment of temptation, the way that you will achieve victory over the enemy is by turning to God, submitting to him. Because even though you may not be strong enough to overcome that temptation on your own, he is and he will rescue you. He will give you a way out. He promises to. First Corinthians chapter 10, God says, hey, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And we see this proven in the life of Jesus. Scripture says even Jesus was tempted in every single way that we are. And yet he was without sin. So how did he do it? Well, he had a vibrant prayer life. He lived with God. He soaked himself in the word. He memorized scripture. He surrounded himself by other people. He lived in community. He was open with them. And then when the moment of temptation came for him, like it did, like it will for all of us, he chose to say no to his flesh and yes to the Father. And we can do those things too. So, the last weapon that the enemy will use on you, if he doesn't get you with those, will be persecution. Persecution. Or excuse me, accusation. Excuse me, that's, I can't count. <laughs> accusation. Because that's actually what the devil's name means. It, it, the word Satan, it's not actually a name. It's a title. In the Hebrew language, the word Satan means adversary, which means Satan in his nature is against you. He's trying to accuse you. He's trying to drag you back into darkness and disorder. He's an adversary. And then the Greek equivalent of the word Satan, which is used in the New Testament, the word for devil is the word diabolos. It's where we get our word devil. You can also hear it in there. It's where we get our word diabolical. Diabolos means slanderer. He's an adversary. He's a slanderer. Satan loves to slander and accuse you. He's gonna take your sin and he's gonna fling it in front of your face. He's gonna bring it back to your mind. He's gonna drag it before God to discourage you, discredit you, and disqualify you. He's gonna lie to you and try to deceive you about it. He's gonna say, see all these hard things you're going through? He's gonna say, see all the pain in your life? God can't be protecting you. He can't be for you. He can't be loving you. No, you must have screwed it up too bad. You are too useless, too far gone. God can't be loving you. He can't be forgiving you. He's gonna accuse you of your sin. He's gonna try to bog you down with guilt and with shame. He's gonna bring up the darkness of your past and the shortcomings of your present and the uncertainty of your future. He's gonna point at your wounds. But praise God that when he points at our wounds, we just turn around and point at the wounds of Jesus. And we say, no, 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 those sins are paid for. I'm free. Accusation. And the last weapon he'll use is persecution. The attacks of the enemy are distraction, deception, temptation, accusation, and persecution. There are some of you in the room today who are undergoing true, legitimate suffering. The lion is roaring, and he would love nothing more than to devour you. 
And sometimes when you're undergoing suffering in hard times like that, it's easy to feel alone. You know, to feel like you're the only one going through it, nobody else understands. I think that's why Peter tells us here, he says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, he says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In other words, he says, you're not alone. There are millions of our brothers and sisters worldwide right now who are suffering for their faith. There's a Christian woman in India who just watched her sister get drug away by Hindu nationalists, and she has no idea if her sister is dead or alive or if she'll ever see her again. There's a Christian brother in a prison labor camp in North Korea with thousands of others. He's been beaten unconscious, but now they're shaking him awake so the beatings can begin again. There's a young girl in Nigeria running for her life because she just escaped her kidnappers, and she's pregnant. And when she gets home to her family, they will reject both her and her baby. And there's a Christian family in Sri Lanka that's gonna gather around the dinner table tonight and there's gonna be empty chairs at that table because of the family members that they lost when their church was bombed last Easter. Persecution is real, church. The lion is roaring. Every day, one out of nine Christians in the world faces religious persecution. That means that over 245 million of our brothers and sisters in the world are undergoing intense suffering day in and day out for following Jesus. There is more persecution of Christians now than at any other time in world history. You see it up on there on the screen. As of last year, as of 2018, every month around the world, 322 Christians were killed for their faith. It's more than 10 every day. Every month, 214 Christian churches and properties were destroyed. Every month, 772 acts of violence were committed against Christians. The lion is roaring. And I hear the lion roaring all over. I hear the lion roaring in politics, where he would love nothing more than to distract us with petty arguments in order to keep us from accomplishing justice for the weak and mercy for the poor. I hear the lion roaring with thousands of babies aborted every year and thousands of teenage moms shunned and shamed. I hear the lion roaring with families torn apart by divorce. I hear the lion roaring when opioids ruin countless lives, even here in Hendricks County. I hear the lion roaring when parents become so consumed with their careers that they neglect their marriages and disregard their kids. I hear the lion roaring when the majority of our young people are mired in the darkness of slavery to pornography. I hear the lion roaring when cancer shreds the bodies of the people that we love. I hear the lion roaring when our educational systems suppress the knowledge of God and elevate the age-old sin of individualism. I hear the lion roaring when, when children are starving to death all across the world and the rich people like us go on living like it doesn't even matter. I hear the lion roaring, don't you? There's a pastor in Los Angeles who tells a story of two men who went to an art gallery. And they walk down the hall there in the art gallery and they stop at this one painting of a chess match. And on one side of the chessboard is a man and on the other side is the devil himself. And they're playing a game of chess for the man's soul. On the man's face is a look of despair and on the devil's face is a look of glee. Because if you look at the board, you notice that the man is down to his last piece. And the title of the painting? Checkmate. 
It just so happened that one of those two men there at the art museum that day was a national chess champion. And he was really intrigued by this painting. He just kept looking at it over and over and over. And eventually he said to his friend, he said, you, you go on, I have to stay here and study this painting some more. Something seems wrong. And when his friend came back, he said, he said look, 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 we, we have to go find whoever painted this painting. We have to tell them that they either need to change the title or change the painting. And his friend said, what do you mean? He said, look, the title of the painting is Checkmate. But look at the board. Look at the man's last piece. The king still has one more move. Now listen, when we see the enemy and we see the brokenness and the pain all around us and the darkness and the depravity of the world that we are living in, when we hear the lion roar, sometimes it looks like checkmate. But don't be fooled. Adam and Eve, way back in the garden, they listened to the snake. And they're banished from God's presence and it seems like the story's over before it even begun. Sure looks like checkmate. But the king still had one more move. And Moses and the Israelites, God's people, with the enemies of God coming down before them, Red Sea behind them, desert on either side, Pharaoh's army barreling down towards them. It seems hopeless. It sure looked like checkmate. But the king still had one more move. Young David there standing before the enemies of God, facing off against the giant Goliath, the massive Philistine army, bigger, better experienced, more trained. It looked like checkmate. But the king still had one more move. Daniel, in a hostile land, chooses to be faithful to God. He gets thrown to the lions for it. The lions are hungry. Daniel looks like supper. The situation looks like checkmate. But the king still had one more move. And a man named Jesus comes walking into Jerusalem and the people want to make him their king. But it doesn't last long. And in just a few days, they beat him and they mock him and they jam a crown of thorns on his head and they nail him to a cross to kill him. And they take his lifeless corpse down off the cross. They throw it there in the tomb and slam the great stone down across the entrance. And the enemies of God say, well, I guess that's that. Story's over. Checkmate. And Jesus' lifeless body lay there in the grave Friday night and Saturday and Saturday night. But the king still had one more move because when the first rays of dawn came peeking up over the horizon on Sunday morning, Jesus came back to life and the enemy was defeated. So church, when you hear the lion roar, take heart because he's just a lion on a leash. <laughs> Scripture tells us that when Jesus died and rose again, the enemy lost the power of death. He no longer gets to dangle sin and death over us. So just like Peter says, stand firm. Jesus has broken his power. So when the enemy tries to attack you with temptation, stand firm. And remember 1 John chapter 4, which says that the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. And when he tries to attack you with accusation and bring your sin up again, stand firm. And remember Colossians chapter two, which says that Jesus forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross.
And when the enemy tries to attack you with distraction or deception or persecution, stand firm and remember that the devil has been defeated. And we get a picture of his doom in Revelation chapter 20, which says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The king still has one more move. My wife, Rebecca, uh, she has a membership to the zoo here, and so she likes to take our boys there during the day, and I've gone with them a few times. And every time I go to the zoo, it always amazes me how our one-year-old son, Judah, acts in front of these ferocious animals. I think we have a picture with Judah and the tigers there. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I came across that tiger out in the wild, I would wet my pants. <laughs> I'd, I'd cry like a baby. I know it. I know I would. And look at that thing. That thing could eat Judah for breakfast and come back for seconds. Wouldn't take anything. And yet he stands there and he has no idea that he's supposed to be scared of that animal. He stands firm, looking right at those razor sharp teeth, staring that tiger in the eye. How could he do that? Because he knows that that beast has been contained. And that animal can try all it wants to come after Judah, but it ain't getting through the protective glass. So church, the lion is roaring, and he's hard at work destroying everything in his cage. And he would love to destroy you too if you step in there. But when you follow Jesus, you have no reason to fear. So stand firm. Let's pray. Jesus, we were enslaved to sin, in bondage to death, in the clutches of the enemy, under the domain of the devil. And rightly so, we deserved it, we chose it. And yet you did not leave us there. And so we are gathered here today as a living, breathing testimony to your victory. We are gathered here as people alive in your triumph. And we take great joy in knowing that when you died and rose again, you did not just save us, but you also defeated the enemy, both then and now and forever. And so, King Jesus, deliver us from the evil one. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.